30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard We think of ourselves as people, but really, we're an ongoing process. All of us are composed of trillions of cells, constantly dividing, changing, growing, dying. If you could step outside the flow of time as humans normally experience it, you'd see yourself as one long flowing being with a baby at one end and a skeleton at the other. But even that is a limited view, losing track of the larger process in which we all exist. In fact, what you'd really see is an endless flow of beans branching out again and again with each baby just a new juncture in the flow. Which, I've got to say, is a very strange way to start a podcast episode featuring your grandma. But no, seriously, folks. Wizardry is about seeing the world in new ways and a very important way of seeing the world I think each modern generation gets further away from is seen through the eyes of your elders. The people that precede us in this long flow of tangled beans and babies experience the world we're forgetting faster and faster. And the ones we're related to, they not only experienced it in a way that's more similar to how we might have experienced it than probably anyone else, but their experiences, choices, happy accidents, personal traumas, and random coincidences led to our very existence. I was fortunate to get to spend some time with both of my grandparents this summer at a family reunion. They're both in their 90s now, and I knew I wanted to take this opportunity to not only have a talk with them about their lives and soak up a little of that intergenerational wisdom, but I wanted to bring them into the magic of this podcast, extending the scope of our ritual from the late 20s when they were born out into the weird future we can't even imagine now. This episode with my grandma is thus part of a pair, just as my grandparents themselves have been a pair for nearly 70 years. Growing up, the main thing I identified my grandmother with was poetry. While by no means a computer whiz, I actually don't even think she's ever had an email account. She nonetheless mastered the art of Microsoft Word in order to compile little folded pamphlets of poetry, both her own originals and ones she found and excerpted that accompanied my annual birthday card. They're basically little poetry zine mixtapes, which is pretty badass when you get down to it. So, without further ado, let's chat with my grandma Marian and learn how to discover your history. Hi, Grandma. Hello, Devon. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you very much. This is a very beautiful ritual space indeed. We're sitting on this exquisite porch in the Great Smoky Mountains with rain dripping, mist moving over the mountains, and the distant roar of the highway. It's good to be here. And the silence in general is gorgeous. Yes, it's wonderful. 
Well, let's break that silence for a moment with our magic word. What's our magic word going to be? Discover. Discover. On the count of three. One, two, three. Discover. Discover. Hmm. Why discover? Well, I just think life is a pattern of discovery from the moment you're born. And it's evidence of life. And it's a continuation of life. And it's part of your education and curiosity and creativity. And we all have to continue discovering every second of our lives. I like that too because... It makes me think of another word, which is create. But discover is interesting because discover is understanding that we are in a world that is much vaster than what we know and understand. And not everything has to just come from in here in in your Mm -hmm. own head. There's things that are out there. And then even you can flip that on its head and say, well, aren't you also just discovering what's in your own mind? And I think discovering ignites creativity. Absolutely. Now, when were you born? Oh, dear me. Do you really want to hear that? Yeah. 1928. 1928. That was a big year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about world history in 1928, but... um, uh, Well, it was 1929, right? Oh, that's when the dive, yes, the financial dive took place. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about what you remember as some of your earliest discoveries. Oh, that's an that's a challenging question. Earliest discoveries. Probably people are your earliest discoveries. Mm-hmm. I mean, your whole world depends on the people around you, or yeah. you will not continue to exist. Who was um, around you when you were growing up? Oh, mom, dad. Um, and this is something that I'm not sure even exists anymore, but they had a live-in maid. Oh, wow. And um, she was part of our life. Um, my mother's mother. Yeah, had, if you could just paint us the picture of, you know, what, what uh, did your family do? Where did you grow up? What did it look like then? Oh, well, my father was a dentist. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that meant that if one of his patients canceled, he called my mother and said, send one of the kids over. (laughs) (laughs) And it also meant almost zero candy in our lives. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Just from a child's point of view, I'm giving you here. Of course. Um, um, And my mother was, um, she was a giver. Mm -hmm. All she wanted to do her whole life was to give herself in service to other people. Um, if not to her family, which came first, um, she served the Red Cross for something like 55 or 60 years. Wow. And got on, got an award from the, um, I can't think of her name, Elizabeth, somebody in Washington. I should remember that name. But anyway, she got an award from, for being, uh, and during the war, as part of the Red Cross, she became a gray lady. And a gray, the gray ladies were um, recruited to um, visit the, for, the hospitals at the, at the forts where the soldiers were mm-hmm. and um, just sort of bring comfort to them, be able maybe write letters for them. Or um, uh, oh, they probably had carts with books and uh, 
oh, let's say Coke. I don't really know yeah. what sorts of things, but comfort comfort things. So not medical support, but just oh, sort of... Oh, no, it was basically, um, well, mothering support yeah. was what the gray ladies did. Female emotional work yeah, to, yes. to comfort, yeah. And um, after my father died, she decided to move to Michigan. <clears throat> oh, I grew up on Long Island. I should probably okay. back up because yeah. I grew up on Long Island. And um, I worked in New York City as a, after I graduated from college. What was Long Island like when you were growing up? I've only been out, you know, uh, a few uh, times, and I'm sure the Long Island that I've seen is, is very different from the one that you it's remember. It's different from the one I grew up in. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, at real, where we grew up, it was Flushing, mm-hmm. and that was almost the outer limits of the metropolitan um, Manhattan yeah. um environment uh, it began to thin out a little bit more towards countryside but you had to drive an hour to get to anything like a cornfield what were the demographics then because flushing now is i've been out to flushing and, and it's korean well it's 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 got a lot of chinese and indian yeah. and it's it's incredibly diverse it's 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 wonderful to go out there and see all of these different cultures intersecting, but I'm curious what it was like I when you were I grew up in a white ghetto. It was a white ghetto, okay. Absolutely, totally. Yeah. Um, the school I went to, I mean, we were almost unconscious of other races except as they served the white people. Mm. And now I, I, I have to tell you, I resent that now. Yeah. I really do. I mean, and that's the way the white people perceived all other races, that they were servants to white people. Mm-hmm. And the, the schools I went to, not my choice, because in those days, children had no choice, and girls certainly had no choice. Yeah. Absolutely not. So you did what Daddy said. Yeah. Um, and like 100% white everywhere. Now, how I got to my current belief I cannot explain but I think that is appalling abysmal point of view yeah well I think it takes us back to the the word and discovery and I'm, I'm curious how I think I think one of the things that I see in my generation that I draw issue with sometimes is that we look back at the past and we see something and go oh no 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 that's so bad I would never have participated in that if I was back then. Like racism is some sort of individual choice that everyone was just making wrong. And now we are just so fortunate to be so much more moral and above that rather than understanding that when you grow up in a world where that's just the way things are, it takes discovery to find the cracks in that and suddenly go, wait a minute. Why is that the way that is? So I'm curious if you remember any moments where you started to question that or see it in new ways. And were those personal moments or, you know, watching the civil rights movement on TV? Well, that's really making me think. Um, Well, my father, I went to a high school that was so overcrowded that I was getting no education at all. Yeah. And my father decided that if I was not going to end up more or less in the gutter, he'd better do something. So he sent me to a very, very, very small Quaker boarding high school. Um, There were exactly 22 students in my class. Yeah. My French class was five students. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
in the, this school, um, uh, children of Quaker parents got priority for the school, mm-hmm. but it was open to other other students from around. So I began to have, well, one of my friends was a, Span- uh, a Venezuelan boy. Yeah. Um, one of my friends was a Jewish girl. And these people, I, they were just people for me. Um, they meant, it, that meant nothing to me at all. Mm-hmm. And at one point I invited my Jewish girlfriend to come home for a weekend, uh, sleepover, so mm-hmm. to speak. And we were having a good time together and she said, I can't visit you anymore. And I said, Peggy, what's wrong? She said, your parents don't like me. So the message came through that they perceived she was Jewish. And yeah. they, I mean, that, I mean, there was that, that wall. Right, that division. And I have, I mean, now I was in high school. I graduated what, like 18 years old. Mm-hmm. How many hundreds of years is that till now at my age? <laughs> <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. That, yeah. that appalled me. And when I visited her parents, they were the most welcoming people. I mean, I felt like they loved me. Yeah. And the reception was so different. Um, and I think I kind of think that might have been a turning point. Absolutely. Where I began, and then another incident. I went to a conference um, from Friends Academy. And part of this was racial equality and uh, sort of religiously oriented. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember was they said an x-ray of a black hand and a white hand, you can't tell the difference. Right. I was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. There's no difference. The skin is all there is. And boy, when I, when I told my father how exciting that was, his response was, if that's what you're going to learn in that school, I'm going to take you out. Oh, wow. So I never told him again what I was learning. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting, this idea of division, because on the one hand, your father was trying to create divisions between your people and the other yeah. groups. You know, my daughter and my family, not this Jewish family, not this other family, not these progressive Quakers but then what ended up happening was a division between you and your father because you learned well if I want to learn these things that I believe in I need to keep that separate from what I talk with my father about yes in a way I yeah. learned I, yes I really learned how to edit my um, communication yeah uh, I mean when you're a child there's no editing yeah. and things spill out and you get corrected. Mm -hmm. Well, I was no longer going to be corrected. (laughs) (laughs) So where did you go from there after high school? What did you do? Well, I went to a very small women's college in Pennsylvania, Cedar Crest. Was that also a Quaker school? No, that was Evangelical and Reformed. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, And one of the first classes I had to take ever in that school was a Bible study. Mm. class which i found to be absolutely fascinating because it was a bible as history folklore um literature um inspiration mm-hmm. and that has really um 
formed a lot of my way of thinking since then because I, well, did God write a single word that's in the Bible? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, but I think... <laughs> I think you're totally right that if, if God wrote it, he uh, he sure contradicted himself a lot. <laughs> well, obviously, the Bible was written about 900% by men. Yeah. And um, not one single word that Jesus spoke was ever written down in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it's all by hearsay and so on. And the message is fantastic. I don't know how so-called Christians got so derailed from his message. I decided some time ago that the whole New Testament can be condensed to five words. Love God, love each other. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's the New Testament. Yeah. So how did Christians get so derailed to come into unexplored countries and just declare that the religions of the people in that country was wrong. Yeah. They had no right. None whatsoever to say, how did, why did not the Native Americans try to convert the Christians? Yeah. I mean, they had as much right to do that as the Christians had to try to convert them. Well, that idea of conversion was one of the really radical inventions of Christianity because previously it was it was more the divisions that we've just been talking about of up oh, this is my group's religion this is our god we don't even think that our god cares about your people your people have a different god who's not as good as our god and that's just the way it is and the christians were very new in saying no you need to learn about our god and you can do it willingly or at the end of a gunpoint but you're got to get on board with our god well, my, my question to any fundamentalist is, you believe that God created everything on earth, all the animals, mm -hmm. all the people? Okay. He, he created all the people, right? Yeah. So does not a father love his children, all of them? Mm -hmm. Black, white? Asian, yeah. Native American, whatever color they are, yeah. there's no telling them that they are wrong because they are of some other ethnic group. Yeah. Um, it's taken me a long time to get this mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what this podcast is all about. It's getting mad. So um, the school in Pennsylvania, what did you study there aside from the Bible? Oh, well, I didn't really study the Bible. That yeah. was one. That was one, one class. That was a right. course in one year. Yeah. And that really opened up my thinking a lot. Sure, yeah. But I majored in French and English. Okay. And, of course, a philosophy. Oh, I had a lovely liberal arts education and nothing practical. Yeah. I graduated with, from college with no business skills whatsoever. And then I had to go to secretarial school to gain enough skills to get a job so then i actually became a secretary so i'm curious about because i think my high school was so focused on college they had a really high rate mm -hmm. of people that went off to a four-year school i was not one of them but it was very much you've got to go to college you've got to think about this yeah, i know yeah. that now more and more you got to get into a good preschool so you can get into a good college and it's all laid out mm -hmm. but i'm curious what did you think when you were entering 
college and the world that you wanted to do? Were you thinking about what kind of career you wanted to have? What was your oh, mindset? I like? wanted to work for the United Nations as a translator. Ah, okay. That, that was my real goal. Yeah. And, um, well, it turns out that you had to be so fluent from one language to the other, there was no thought between the languages. Of course, yeah. And four years of literary French in college is not... <laughs> And in those days, they didn't have language labs, so I never heard the language. Oh. I mean, the teacher spoke to us in French. But you were reading. But we were just reading Moliere and yeah. Hugo, and um, it was literary. Yeah. And um, now nowadays they have well, when Karen was in school. My, my daughter, Karen, for those who don't know whom I'm talking about, um, she wanted to become more fluent in Russian, and she had had like one year of Russian in college, and then she spent a summer at Middlebury in Vermont. And I went home and told my father I had to go to Middlebury in Vermont to get what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, oh, you're just doing okay where you are. Don't rock the boat. Yep. Stay there. Well, my dad was paying the bills. Sure. So I can't say I'm sorry I'm out of here. Yeah. That women had no power like that. So anyway, but my, when, when Karen finished that summer class, she was speaking Russian. Mm. The, when you entered the, the dorm, the rule was that you spoke only the language you were studying. You got to do immersion. That's the that's the only way. And that right, exactly. Mm. And um, of course, when you only know a basic few words, it's a little difficult. Yeah. Um, but they were they had to use the language they were studying. Yeah. So after um, after school, did you go back to live with your family in New York? Oh yes. Yeah. That's the way it was with young women. Right. Um, they didn't go out on their well. I guess there were some that did, but um, it was rare. It was rare. Yeah, you stayed under daddy's um, pr protection, and then worked as a secretary. I worked as a secretary. Yes, yeah. uh, I worked for Condé Nast Publications. Oh, okay. Uh, Glamour Vogue and House and Garden. Yeah, and um, I worked for the society editor of Vogue for a while, and then transferred to the advertising um, classified advertising editor of glamour mm -hmm. um well glamour and house and garden all the advertising that went in the back of the book yeah um, and then after that i worked as a secretary at northeast airlines at LaGuardia airport oh cool <laughs> that was cool because as an employee of an airline when I got married, I still had the privileges for about a month or six weeks after I left their employ. So, and my next of kin was also included. So I got basically free transportation to the Bahamas for our honeymoon. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Which we would not have been able to afford. <laughs> yeah. So how did you meet my grandfather? Oh, boy. <laughs> The most unlikely way in the world, a blind date. <laughs> <laughs> I had had enough blind dates that I was done. <laughs> was So, yeah, like, I mean, you know, this is a generation of people that swipe on a phone to figure out who they're going to go on a date with. How was the blind date common? Were you setting up friends on blind dates? Was that just mm -hmm. sort of? 
No, we have to back up now because okay. remember I said my mother was a gray lady. Yes. Now, during the war, the gray ladies did a lot of service at the local Fort Totten, which is right practically neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, not exactly, but nearby. And when she was working, now, when I came home from college, I'd been away for seven years. Yeah. So there were no friends that existed nearby anymore from elementary school. Mm-hmm. For, so um, I really had very little social life, and my mother said that there was a group of young women that were picked up at the y- YMCA in Flushing by bus and taken in on Thursdays to the fort, and they had almost what we would call then a sock hop. Okay. I mean, canned music and yeah. dancing and so on, and then they were all loaded on the bus and taken back to, fort, back to the Y. Yeah. I said, Mother. I don't want to be a camp follower. <laughs> like I even knew what a camp follower was. <laughs> However, um, I mustered a girlfriend who also lived on Long Island mm-hmm. uh, from college. And the two of us went together to the fort on Thursday evenings yeah. um, to the dance. Well, as it turned out, the guys were all seated on one side of the room and the girls were all seated on the other side of the room and never the twain shall meet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some people were dancing. Mm -hmm. Now, how they got together, I'm not not going to be able to answer that because uh, I sat there Thursday after Thursday after Thursday wondering if my nose was upside down. Because no one, like, like people weren't crossing the divide to come over and ask people to dance? Well, here, here's, now get the, have you ever heard of a Sadie Hawkins dance? Yes. That's where the girls ask, ask the, guy. the guys. Mm-hmm. I thought, I have nothing to lose. So yeah. the Sadie Hawkins is declared, and I decided I would just go over and pick pick one. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, may I, may I have the pleasure of this dance? He almost climbed over the back of the chair to get away from me. Oh, no. <laughs> And I said, well, thank you for your courtesy. And then I asked another one. Yeah. And no, 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 yeah. no. And I said, well, gentlemen, thank you very much. And I went back and sat down. Oh, man. Can you believe any such rudeness? Yeah. Were they being rude or were they just awkward and shy? I, awkward and shy. Yeah. Yeah. That, really, no yeah. social skills whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> now, my girlfriend, I don't know how this happened. I really don't recall yeah. But anyway, she was had had begun dancing with one of the soldiers, and this soldier said that he had a friend that wanted, would like to go out on a date. Well, now we were never supposed to leave the fort with any of the soldiers, mm-hmm. but that didn't mean that we couldn't sort of set up something for another occasion. Right. So we arranged a blind date. He arranged a blind date, and with his friend and Elaine, mm-hmm. picked me. Well, of course. Yeah. And that was less. Where did you go on the date? We actually went to a. Well, I'm going to call it like a a nightclub on Long Island where we danced. Okay. And dancing has never been Les's favorite activity. (laughs) (laughs) Neither then nor now. (laughs) But somehow we just kept seeing each other after that. And I was totally demolished when he was um, released from service and returned home to Michigan because I was afraid I was never going to see him again. So I launched a letter writing campaign, and I swear he married me so he could stop writing letters. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, how long was it from when you met to when you married? We met in 1953 and married in 1955. Okay. So... but he came back home to Michigan, and he wanted to finish his education, and mm-hmm. um, of course. And he had decided in the meantime, he'd had his education interrupted, and he didn't want to go back in the direction he'd started, um, and decided on architecture. So he had to do some remedial um, preparation before he entered architecture school. Yeah. But we married while he was still in school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you shipped out to Michigan. I did. Yeah. And found a wonderfully welcoming family. Yeah. So different from mine that it was like night and day. Yeah. I mean, they were they were farm folks, um, limitlessly generous, welcoming. Um, when my mother was widowed, she became their resident grandmother. Oh, wow. I mean, that's I mean, they just yeah. scooped her in. Yeah. So, um, and they, they had, as I think now, of course, I'm the daughter-in-law, but I think they had no opinions one way or another about race. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I do have to observe that there were very, very few um, black people or, well, there might have been some Hispanics in the farm country in Michigan, um, but they had no... Um, I didn't, I didn't detect any prejudice at all. Well, it's a very interesting time period that you're talking about because you are of this generation where, I mean, mm-hmm. Grandpa had his education paid for by being by the, in, by the Army. By the yeah. Army. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, my, my father and most of my uh, aunts and uncles are part of the baby boom, and you mm-hmm. were living in that uh, suburban American dream as the country went through uh, quite a lot of changes and discovered a lot in terms of, you know, political change, cultural change, technological change. And I'm curious about, again, with this word discovery, like what do you feel like you discovered during that time period? Um, You mean the, the time period that I was married? Yeah, just raising, yeah, just raising a family, you know, going through the 50s and 60s and 70s. Well, I have to say when when you have one car and a brand new baby, you're trapped. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. You're home with the baby 90, 99.9% of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, every now and again, you all get in the car and go somewhere. So I was really confined to the four walls of the house, more or less, for quite a while. Um, but I have to tell you, Giving birth to a magnificent little baby boy, you you fall dementedly in love, <laughs> mm. and there is absolutely nothing you want to do more than that. Yeah, and so I don't ever remember being unhappy. It really in my whole life because now I should back up and give my parents credit because they gave me a very privileged life, mm-hmm. and they gave me dance lessons and piano lessons which was a an activity of futility i have to say <laughs> i have no musical ability whatsoever but i appreciate the having had that experience because i will forever appreciate what other people can do right because i know how hard it is yeah 
and, and how much creativity and skill it takes. So even if you don't become a ballet dancer or a pianist or whatever, it gives you a, an incredible appreciation of what other people can do. Mm -hmm. And my father saw to it that I had a superb education. And, and I feel like it also led me to the marriage that has been a gift from heaven, I have mm -hmm. to say that. How long and have you been together? How long we've been? Well, we've been married for 66 years. Wow. And, mar and met three years before that. So yeah. we're pushing on 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good record. <laughs> it's a pretty good record. I really lucked out. He's, yeah. he's, he's a jewel beyond compare. Yeah. Now, we're going to get into the home stretch now, but there's another important era of discovery that I'm curious to hear about from you. And one of the things that I always grew up knowing that you did, that you taught about, that you cared about was poetry. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, even on my birthday, I, I still get lovely little books of uh, assembled <laughs> poems from you. And so I'm curious, when did when did poetry into, into your life? I discovered a book of poetry. Well, my parents had a summer home in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And there was a shelf with just some sort of old oldish books on it. And I have been a reader from the time I opened a book and discovered the words, yeah. addicted reader. So addicted that at one point my mother cleaned out my bookcase so that I couldn't read all the time. And um, I informed her that she had no right to take my Bible. Yeah. So she reluctantly returned the Bible and I read it cover to cover. <laughs> <laughs> so she put the books back. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, at, in Candlewood Lake, I discovered a book, collected um, English, you know, English lit uh, poetry. Mm -hmm. And I just started, even this really old-fashioned language and everything, I just fell into that book and fell in love with the poems. When was this? Oh, I must have... I'm going to say maybe I was 13 or 14 okay. years old, something yeah. like that. And... Um, and I guess I always, but when I start, oh, I think I really started writing poetry when I was in college. Mm. Had my first boyfriend. Yeah. And that launched. There we go. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I wasn't the dating wonder of the world. Yeah. And so throughout, was, some, was poetry something that you've always done or did it have kind of ebbs and flows and a resurgence. Oh, it does ebb and flow. If yeah. you're, a, you're a writer, so you know there are times when you can't get enough paper to write on, and then there's yeah. other times when you despair if you're ever going to write again. Right. Uh, and that happens. But yeah. um, more or less consistently ever since then, one way or another, there's been something on paper. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's you've, you've gone on to be part of a poetry community and teach workshops and uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, in 1974, a friend of mine start, asked me if I would be interested in meeting with a, another group, with other people also interested in poetry. And so I said, oh, yes, that sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. So she started what we called the Poets Workshop. Now, that implies that you're actually working on the poetry, but we were really do, doing more sharing than working. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it became the River Junction Poets with workshops on the side where we did work on poetry. Um, but 
but that was in 1974, and the River Junction Poets is still meeting. Wow. And um, it's a group of people that is very accepting. Mm -hmm. What you write is, we do not criticize unless we're asked for comment. And every, we always begin anything with something positive, never negative. And then we might ask some questions about things that, or make a suggestion of maybe, maybe this isn't quite the exact word that you meant, and this one might be a little clearer, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, oh, I think one of the most valuable things that you learn as a writer is that you need an editor. It, it, oh, it, yeah, it, you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. I mean, you, there's times that you have to, like when I'm trying oh. to write a podcast intro and get it out, I don't have time to send it off to somebody and get notes and go back and forth. But I tell you what, when my writing does have that, oh, it's, it just elevates it so much. Well, I've read Whitman and, and Wordsworth and some of these guys needed an editor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they went on. I mean, have you read? Have you ever read a Wordsworth poem that went on for thirty pages, double column? Yeah. I mean, get real. Get to the point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and is all that rambling really poetry? Yeah. Well, now I don't know if this is the River Junction poets or this is just another group of friends, but I know that we both have a mutual appreciation for magic words. And I would love for you to talk about um, the, the, the word gifting that arose in your group. Well, I, I guess I'm not entirely sure what that question means. We, so when you told me about how for the birthdays, that among your group of friends. that Oh, this was women friends that this, we yes, had. Yes. That, oh, yeah. Well, and, mo and most of them were part of the poetry group, too. But, um, oh, we used to meet to celebrate. There was a whole group of birthdays in the fall and then another group of birthdays in the spring. Mm -hmm. So we just decided to have a birthday lunch yeah. in, at each season. Well, we also decided that we don't need any more scented candles <laughs> <laughs> as gifts. Yeah. And I can't really remember who suggested it. I might have actually, but I said, why don't we give each other a gift word? And that means, now that is tricky, because let's say I want to give a gift word to my grandson, Devin. Mm -hmm. I have to think about who Devin is and what Devin values. And so I have to choose a word pretty carefully. And um, we could explain it or not, but I have to say you start dealing with words and you, you keep going with them. And we often just added a little more of what we intended for that word um, well there was a couple birthdays where you would send me a letter and i i feel like one of the words was serendipity but maybe i'm misremembering mm -hmm. but there was a couple but when i was transitioning and becoming a wizard there was a couple of birthdays where you sent me the word and it was just exactly the right one and just was oh, oh wow all right that's the theme let's let's go with that and just aligned very nicely so i've always appreciated that idea of a single word you know a poem you can do mm. so much but when you boil it down mm. to, to one word i think yeah. one letter is too little like oh here's yeah. the letter b and you're like oh, all right well, well, what does that mean no, well, but when you get one word it um you're able to take it in so many different directions it's so adaptable mm. and it's so poignant and let me just say that, and you probably know this as a writer, you don't often get much feedback 
Oh yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you you never know whether you succeeded in any way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have to say, one of my dear friends has a copy of my book, and she said, "Oh, I treasure your book. I'm allowing myself one poem a day," mm. and I think, "What? Yeah. <laughs> really?" Now that was her gift to me because I don't get that kind of feedback. Now, I have to say, I never knew whether any of my gift words Mm -hmm. really made a difference. Now, you've just given me a gift. Well, that's one of the things that I think I I, I resonate with that a lot. And, you know, doing a podcast that always feels like I'm shouting into the void (laughs) and every once in a while I'm lucky enough to have a listener reach out or even to run into somebody and they say, oh, wait, I listened to your podcast. And yeah, it means the world. And that's one of the things that we've started to do recently is we have virtual gatherings where the listeners come together and we're able to actually communicate and have a community, which I think is, mm-hmm. I don't know, is, is so much more meaningful than just this idea that we have of the artist who just puts their pen to paper and pushes it out into the world. I mm-hmm. I think it's I'm trying to have more of a conversation than I am a, a monologue. That's why I'm talking well, to, and, to and you I, right now. And I really think creativity is stimulated oh, yeah. by interaction with other artists. And I don't care if I'm a poet and you're a painter. Yeah. The creativity is the same. When I was doing comedy and I would go to a, a, a comedy open mic, which can be very painful because it's very bad a lot of the time. But I found it to be very stimulating because I would be sitting there and I think my brain is trying to crawl out the back of my skull to get away from the train wreck that's happening on stage. And suddenly my brain's going, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. So Anything you, other than watching this. But you're getting the ideas from your experience. From my experience, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say that I do hear and read poems. I read poems that win prizes, and I don't understand anything anything that they say. uh, A very famous poet was born in Saginaw, Michigan, Theodore Retke, and there is now a $10,000 Theodore Retke prize given every three years to someone who has written a book within those three years. Now, a couple of years ago, and I'm not going to remember the name if I known about this interview i'd have come prepared um the the person that won the prize of course i bought the book mm-hmm. i have to say i do not consider it poetry at all yeah. my own personal opinion i get the fact that he is very angry and as apparent from just opening to randomly any yeah. page um, the words are upside down. They're in huge black of black print. They're sideways at angles. Um, they shout on the page mm-hmm. and often make no sense either, except the anger. Yeah. And I'm sorry. To me, poetry has to have a unique point of view. Mm. Now. I used to go into classrooms, which I dearly loved doing, to get students to write their own poetry. And of course, they thought they couldn't. And every last one of them wrote before I left. Yeah. Um, and I would start with a um, an a, a page of poems on a theme. Now, let's say uh, emotions, just for one. And that's that's pretty easy, especially at like say fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'd have to ask them what are emotions, and you'd be surprised at kids who really don't know what emotions are. 
Oh, I've met adults that don't know what emotions are. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. And so we'd finally have to clarify that. So one of my poems was um, anger crashing like waves on a rock. Mm-hmm. Well, that just, whoa, that yeah. sends chills up my spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next poem I had was dancing in the water and splashing up to my up to my ears. Now, there's two different images of water, and mm-hmm. one is anger and one is joy, happiness. Yeah. So I asked the kids, so what else would be a picture of anger? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, fifth graders sit with their hands in their laps, and if I can get one kid to say anything. I mean, it's like trying to get a soldier to dance with you all over again. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You got it. Absolutely. But if I could get one kid to say something, I said, see, I bet yeah. some of you had that same idea. It's a yeah. good idea. Mm-hmm. But I'd get things like a roaring lion or burning fire yeah. and things like that. So I said, yes, you're yeah. getting it. You're understanding what I want you to. So yeah. it seems to me that this imagery is the most important core of poetry, yeah. um, symbolically even. Um, okay, so what is happiness? Oh, of course, you get a few rainbows. That's predictable. Mm-hmm. Butterflies, that's yep. predictable. But yes, that's getting their imagination out. And, and I feel like cliche is even, it's just the um, it's just the stuff on the surface that you have to kind of move through to get deeper. It's just the yeah. natural part to, of it. To get, they have to get in touch with who they are. Yeah. With their own inner self. And I... I tell every classroom, I said, there is not another human being on this earth that is just like you. You are the only one, and you think the way you think, and you're the only one that thinks that way. And that's your poetry. Well, that is a beautiful segue into the final piece of this podcast, where all of the unique listeners who think, like nobody else, we're now going to give them a spell, something small that they can do to just go out into the world, do something for themselves, and just do one small thing that will hopefully make the world a slightly better place. And so I'd love to get your creativity uh, to help people take some of what we've been talking about, to take some of your wisdom. And if, if everyone that's listening could do one small thing, what would you ask them to do? Listen to each other. Mm. And what's a good way that we can like make that into an exercise where you can you can go check that off, you know? I think when people are hurting, they're hurting because they feel misunderstood. And sometimes all they need is somebody to hear them and un- non-judgmentally. Yeah. Um, no criticism, just let them say it. Yeah. Now that's another, that's another facet of creativity. I mean, when we're hurting, we can write and, ex- and say in our writing how it hurts when we're joyful, we can write it down. So I would even advise people in any kind of emotional need to start writing it. Well, I was wondering, I was thinking, because I think when you're listening, you want to keep that focus. So I don't want to make it too, you know, you're not going to grab a paper and pen right then and there. But I love what we were talking about with emotions and poetic language. And I wonder if 
everyone the next time they're in a situation where they really need to listen to somebody, where they really need to put aside themselves, not interrupt and go, oh, that reminds me of a story, and just Mm -hmm. listen to someone. If part of your brain, you can try and translate that a little bit and think, what are the emotions this person's expressing and what are the images that are coming to mind? Are they roaring like a lion as they tell me this? Are they so happy that their waves dancing on the shore what is the poetic imagery that you can translate which i think maybe will even help you understand those emotions and listen even better um that's a good point i i think um but also i think that the listener can be formulating questions Mm. to draw out the yeah the, the, the person he's talking to um non-judgmental things sure. but um, let's say clarifying yeah. uh, questions or um, oh I can't think of an example exactly but well, I, I do that all the time where it's important to say alright let me repeat this back to you what you're saying oh, that too, is yes. yeah. what I hear you saying yeah. so that that person is can either agree or clarify yeah. it that's true That's so I think what we're asking everyone to do is to go out in the world and to seek to understand somebody else using these two tools of question and metaphor. And be How, receptive. And be receptive. Yep, yep, I think that's... We have, I hate to get... Um, well, I don't know whether it's sentimental or, or boring, but... but well, it's on. the very end of the podcast, so if it's <laughs> sentimental, you're going to leave us on a high note, and if it's boring, I can edit it out. Treat each other the way you want to be treated. I mean, that's so, so basic. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you, Grandma. Thank you, my dear Devin. Love you. Love you, too. <laughs> All right, I'd like to close this episode out with one of my favorite poems that my grandmother put an excerpt of in one of those little birthday pamphlets. So this is, uh, this is from an awesome book called Poems of Science and Industry by A.M. Sullivan. It's called Measurement. Stars and atoms have no size. They only vary in men's eyes. Men and instruments will blunder, calculating things of wonder. A seed is just as huge a world as any ball the sun has hurled. Stars are quite as picayune as any splinter of the moon. Time is but a vague device. Space can never be precise. Stars and atoms have a girth, small as zero, ten times earth. There is, by God's swift reckoning, a universe in everything. Thank you for listening. I believe in you. Go talk to one of your elders. Their magic is real.